This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Baglia in Stockholm, Sweden, where I recently had the chance to talk with Dr. Annika Nielsen, Senior Research Fellow at Stockholm Environment Institute and Affiliated Faculty at KTH Royal Institute of Technology. Annika's research concerns the science policy interface, with a special focus on Arctic change and international politics. She also participates in scientific assessments under the auspices of the Arctic Council. Here in Episode 5 of the Polar Geopolitics Podcast, we discuss what Annika calls the Arctic Paradox. One part of the paradox implies that, despite the sustainable development mission of the Arctic Council, it has so far done little to actually mitigate climate change, and to some extent even facilitates the very activities that exacerbate the problem. That's the topic for this time, and on a future episode, she'll explain the security aspects of the Arctic Paradox in the context of rising international tensions. But first, here's Annika Nielsen providing some historical context and discussing the failure so far of the Arctic Council to adequately combat climate change. Most people know about the Arctic is that climate is changing incredibly fast. We had the IPCC report that we're most likely going to go past two degrees globally, twice that in the Arctic, four degrees. And you're already seeing lots and lots of impacts of climate change in the Arctic, not just the sea ice that has become kind of a signum and repeated reports on how low the sea ice is, but also a lot of other things that might not be as visible and maybe not as mediated as well. You have that, then you have the mission of of uh, the Arctic Council of Sustainable Development and Environmental Protection. Why hasn't anything happened in terms of actually preventing climate change from the Arctic Council? Going back, you can see that it's actually quite explicit in several documents. You can see that that was considered a global issue. It was not considered a regional issue. I can understand why one said that in the 1990s, early 1990s, when you just had the global regime with the IPCC and the framework convention on climate change and this new regional regime, then it made kind of sense. But it's making less and less of sense. If there's any existential threat to the Arctic in its essence, I would say it would be climate change because it's changing the very nature of the environment that makes it a polar environment. Of course, there will still be aspects of it as a polar environment, but some of the aspects such as the multi-year ice in the Arctic Ocean, I think it's such a key characteristic of the Arctic that will most likely change fairly soon into being seasonally open waters. That is one paradox that I I really see. And why is that? How come that has happened? Especially considering that in many other areas, the, the Arctic Council has been extremely successful in actually addressing some serious environmental threats in the Arctic. Take what you call persistent organic pollutants like DDT and PCB, these kinds of organic substances that stay in the environment that don't break down. They stay in the environment, they accumulate in animals, they end up in people, and they actually reach levels where you have impacts on wildlife. That was the Stockholm Convention, right? Exactly. You had work done in the Arctic, trying to understand how these chemicals function in the Arctic environment, providing the basis for the Stockholm Convention, and also the UNECE long-range transboundary air pollution convention. So it really had an effect. And if you look in the Stockholm Convention, it says in the preamble, if something 
ends up in the Arctic. It is an indication that it's persistent and bioaccumulable. So it's something we really need to do something about. In that sense, you see these successes and then you can wonder why not a similar success in relation to emissions of greenhouse gases and most particularly looking at the oil and gas produced in the Arctic that contribute to the global emissions, not just the local emissions, but the global emissions when those fuels are burned somewhere else. So you're saying the, the successes and the enthusiasm, the optimism of the of the 90s has somehow faded and not been sort of fulfilled? I think rather it's those successes continue in some areas, but not in this particular area because that is being put aside. And interestingly, you, you have successes in that the Arctic Council has looked seriously at the emissions of soot, which are quite important in the Arctic because if you get soot, you get a black surface on the snow and you absorb more, the more black, heat. Black carbon. Black carbon. About, yeah. It's another name for soot. Same thing. And there you have had actions in relation to reducing emissions, such as for shipping or burning biofuel and those kinds of things. But when it comes to emissions of greenhouse gases, that is consistently put as something that the Arctic Council should not necessarily deal with. And they made a huge oil and gas assessment a few years ago, 2007 it came out, where they discussed all kinds of local impacts of oil and gas activities, both environmental and social. But if you read the, the introduction of that, it says this does not deal with emissions of greenhouse gases and impacts on climate change. Mm. So it comes again That's formally and informally. Because of politics. It's politically unacceptable to include that as a part of the analysis. That is I think it's a pretty good conclusion. I mean, you, we have countries whose interest it has not been <laughs> to address greenhouse gases in the Arctic or anywhere else. And of course, the United States has gone a little back and forth, depending on who's been in the White House. There have been periods where there have been all breaks on. You don't talk about it at all in the Arctic Council. It's been very high tensions. And there have been periods where there have been support. For example, when the Arctic Climate Impact Assessment came out in 2004, was started, the process started started in 1999. It started with one precedent and then changing precedency. And then you could see towards the end of that policy process that was supposed to be part of that, that there were all breaks on. And actually, there was fairly close to the Arctic Council falling apart over that process. What conclusions could one draw from that? Because that's the assessment that really showed that climate change impacts in the Arctic is not something in the far future. It's something we see now. And it's something that already has consequences and will have even more consequences. So it was a report that was very hard to ignore. It's actually often mentioned as one of the most influential reports of the Arctic Council. I was going to say, it's considered one of the great successes of the Arctic Council. I didn't realize, though, that it was almost the end of the Arctic Council, the controversy around that, the political controversy behind the scenes. Oh, yes, very much so. And Annika, I should mention also, you wrote your PhD dissertation on, on this uh, report, so uh, you, you know what you're talking about. Yeah, the, and I didn't know that this controversy was going to come up when, of course, when I started my PhD. So it was in one sense, a stroke of luck for someone who wants to study a, a political process because it really became controversial. But it was a very interesting process because the United States did not want finally to get this out. They actually tried almost to really hold back and, and definitely did not want any policy proposal or something to come out of it. There were really tough negotiations. And the negotiators that were in the room then, they were the same 
people as in the global negotiations. So suddenly it was the global dynamics, the same dynamics as in the UNFCCC that were transported into the Arctic Council. Eventually there was a statement, fairly bland. It came after parts of the reports and insights from the report were leaked to the New York Times. There were a lot of things going on in that process and you had both scientists and uh, spokespeople for the Inuit Circumpolar Conference speaking in uh, hearings in the Senate and the dynamics you had indigenous people's representatives and science going together, going out publicly on the side of the policy process, forcing it in a sense from the outside. So it was quite interesting for me as a political scientist. It was a very interesting moment. I mean, I actually remember it. Uh, I remember when that report came out, I was, uh, I was hosting this other podcast, uh, this uh, Think Globally radio podcast, and it was quite the splash. It also seemed like a bit of, I mean, a concept that you often use is this idea of tipping points or regime shifts uh, in terms of uh, the, the policy interest in uh, in climate change. And that report, it was maybe a year or so before uh, An Inconvenient Truth with Al Gore and, and many of these other things in, that, mm-hmm. that really led up to this 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 real sort of uh, surge in interest in, in climate change on the political level. Yeah, And that was, I mean, it came out, the shorter report and the results as such came out in 2004. The, the scientific report came out in 2005, but the results, of course, were known. It was a very deliberate attempt to feed into the policy process where the assessment leadership wanted, in a sense, to use the Arctic case to force that process and going back in a sense to why do this assessment in the Arctic? And based on interviews, I know that they discuss different possible regions of the world to do this because there, of course, there are many regions of the world that are very much affected by climate change. And they came to the conclusion that the Arctic was a good case because there was a, a governance regime in terms of the Arctic Council that could provide a context for for this, this dialogue, the institutional context was there. Plus, of course, there was a lot of scientific information and scientific interest. And on top of it, you have the fact that what happens in the Arctic is, is globally relevant. It drives a lot of the climate system, so to speak. So there was a, that kind of interest. In part, that was also the pushback that came from the United States in particular. You know, that you're being political, you are not being scientific, you are interfering with, with politics. That's not your role. You should stick with science. And of course, the scientists and the indigenous peoples, they wanted something done because they saw the consequences. And in a sense, it's, it's a little strange almost to sit. We had the IPCC report last week and you get this splash of discussion and now we really need to do something. Now we realize that we can't wait anymore. I've heard that so many times. You think you reach a kind of a societal tipping point in terms of awareness, but I think we also have to realize there is such strong geopolitical interests at play. This is not an environmental issue. This is a geopolitical issue that has to do with energy security and resource security that comes to the core of national interests. And I think in part it is because it came from the environmental side first. We have tried to understand it as an environmental issue. And then it doesn't make sense. It's not a matter of coordinating and deciding. You actually have quite opposing interests. Getting back to the uh, the Arctic Climate Impact Assessment of 2004-2005, uh, I think that the Arctic report was in some ways, uh, there was an unintended consequence. Not only did it scare people and bring sort of political interest in, into the climate change issue in the Arctic, but it also brought in a lot of actors that saw opportunity, economic opportunity in, a, in melting sea ice and in sort of a change in the geophysical environment of the Arctic, brought in a lot more interest for resource exploitation. Could that be a 
part of the paradox or maybe an origin of the paradox? I think you had you had several things that happened there. You had the, you had the, in 2007, of course, the sea ice minimum that was not predicted in the report that came out in 2005. It came at a surprise also to those scientists who were the most knowledgeable about sea ice behavior. That came as a shock. And of course, to the larger world, that I think it was more so than the SEA report actually was the, that kind of something is really happening. This is not just a scenario. You can see the sea ice as the Arctic ozone hole, the same thing that the Antarctic ozone hole did to the discussion of the ozone layer, something quite visible. It's not something in the computers. But then you also had other processes going on at the same time. You unconventional the law of the sea, the Countries were in the process of submitting their claims to, to the extended continental shelves, i.e. The, the, the resources on the seafloor. And that was part of a process that was going on for a longer time and was kind of scheduled to happen. But countries were starting to really mapping the seafloor at about the same time. So that happened. You had the International Polar Year. So actually in 2007, that summer and fall, you had researchers all over the Arctic looking at the sea ice, work planned before the sea ice minimum. And then you had the planting of the Russian flag on the, <laughs> on the sea. So you had all those things going on at the same time, creating in a sense the perfect storm or creating this meta event. Right. Then also the, uh, the uh, United States uh, Geological Survey um, assessment of uh, fossil fuel resources in the Arctic. Yes, that came in 2008. Yeah, that all played in. And especially, I think, the, the mapping of the seafloor and the submitting of claims then in relation to the U.S. Ge Geological Survey put focus on very much the resources under the ice and uh, access to them and then shipping, of course, as a, as a consequence of, of, of the increasing interest in resources and the, the potentials. Attention to what was going on, and it all came in a fairly short time span. Now that's 10 years ago, though, that these confluence of events happened. Where do you say that these conflicting forces are today in terms of the will to exploit resources versus the, the will to protect the Arctic environment as such, and also the, way, uh, the, the will to contain climate change globally and specifically in the Arctic? Well, I think the interest in resources is still there. But of course, after the drastic drop in oil prices and, and uh, you know minerals prices in 2014, very much linked to decline in the Chinese economy, it's not quite as urgent and economic because it's expensive to do that type of work in the Arctic. And for a big company, that the business decision looks different than it did when the market prices were high. So you have, in a sense, less pressure in the overall. Of course, you have an awareness about the impacts of climate change are increasing. And I think what you see in the past, I would say, year, but intensified in the public debate in the, since the IPCC report, latest one, is the real need for a transition into uh, post-petroleum and post-fossil fuel. You know, you see that discussion in parts over the Arctic, in Norway in particular. But overall, you still have, in a sense, the economic and energy security interests versus the environmental interests. And you see it in the media, you see it most visibly, of course, in relation to what's happening in, in Alaska, where you also get in the discussion of what is Trump doing in relation to what Obama did, what nature reserves do you open up for exploitation. But what we have to remember that most of the oil and gas is in Russia. And there's a strong geopolitical interest in using that both because it's a lot of money, and it's also geopolitical power. So I think the discussion looks different in 
in different places. You can't say that there is one pan-Arctic discussion. But of course, it's much more difficult to take any of this forward in relation to the Arctic Council now than it was during Obama's presidency, because the Arctic Council functions on consensus. But even during the Obama administration, though, a lot of like these 2013 agreements on search and rescue and um, oil spill uh, prevention and response, they also seem to, yeah, they, they sound good. I mean, of course, you should do those things. But at the same time, it seems like they're also facilitating more use of the Arctic, right? It, so this is in some ways not, not really a new development. This is something that has been kind of a continuity. Very much so a continuity. One can go back to the 1980s and look at why the discussion of Arctic cooperation start. Usually, you talk about the 1987 Gorbachev speech. If you go back and actually read that speech, there are some wording and quite a bit of wording that is related to the arms race and all those issues and working towards the taunt. But there is also a substantial part that deals with we have this potential for offshore because the offshore technology, of course, had was starting to mature. And the knowledge was also that there was probably a lot of oil and gas in the Arctic. It was in everyone's interest, not least Norway and Russia, to have a peaceful context within which to develop these resources. You can't develop those resources if you have a contested border, for example, which you had between Norway and Soviet Union, and where you don't know whose resources it really is. So you have to, in a sense, find ways of settling things peacefully. And you also start having economic interests in the Arctic. If you look, for example, United States versus Alaska and look at some of the writings from the time, suddenly you have economic interests in the Arctic that you needed to protect. So there was a reason from a national point of view to engage in the Arctic in a different way than previous to the Prudhoe Bay discovery, because suddenly you had a source of oil that was actually critical for the national U.S. economy, and especially in light of the fact that in the 17, you had the oil embargoes from OPEC, and right. everyone had realized the kind of really precarious situation you could end up in. So to understand the kind of willingness for a peaceful development, you can also see this as linked to oil. It's also linked to the UNCLOS process, of course, in the 1980s. The UNCLOS was, that's when that was really coming. So everyone wanted to show the flag there in that right. sense. So there are many, many reasons. And, and if you look then at the search and rescue or the oil preventing oil pollution agreements, you can see them as a continuation. Yes, we want to collaborate because we have a shared interest in ensuring that this still is a peaceful region in the future and that the development of resources is done in a way that is acceptable. And it becomes more acceptable if it's regulated and you know that you at least follow some environmental standard. Yet this is still, to your mind, a paradox. That you're yeah. trying to protect this environment, but at the same time you're trying to industrially exploit it for, for natural resources, which exacerbate the problem that you're trying mm -hmm. to solve in the first place. That's very interesting. Some of these points you make, I should point out, uh, are uh, covered in, in an article you recently published in the Polar Record on uh, on the United States and their historic Arctic policy from 1867 <laughs> up until uh, about the present, until yeah. the end of the uh, U.S. chairmanship of the Arctic Council in 2017. Yeah, with, with an emphasis, I would say, on uh, on from when they actually had a more explicit Arctic policy, which actually comes in, in connection with the Proto Bay and all. From the late 60s and onwards. Uh. But you, another point uh, that you make is that the United States has, throughout this process, been a somewhat reluctant 
participant in Arctic governance. They, they were skeptical towards uh, the Arctic Council at first. I've always been skeptical to UNCLOS. So there's a certain continuity there with some, some brief <laughs> interludes of more engagement, right? Yeah, but it makes sense. But I would say also that there was a shift, I would say, in 2011 when, when Hillary Clinton was in Greenland at the Nuke meeting that really that reluctance wasn't there. And you had a much stronger engagement in Arctic policy. And it, of course, also depends on who you ask. Do you ask how presidency is, or is it the Congress? I mean, when it comes to uncles, uh, you have a lot of people in the United States who are pushing for uncles, and then you have a resistance in, in the Senate. But we have to understand that the United States is not an Arctic actor, it's a global actor. They think of themselves as a global actor. And the Arctic and, identity in the United States is pretty weak, in, according to your article. Yeah, and it's a similar to Sweden, in a sense. People on the street wouldn't say that we live in an Arctic country. The Arctic identity comes from wanting to be part of the Arctic corporation more than anything else. It's, it's a political choice. Whereas in other countries such as Norway and Canada and Russia, there is a much longer history of, of an Arctic identity as part of a kind of national identity. So I think the Arctic identity in countries like the United States and Sweden is more politically pragmatic. That was Dr. Annika Nielsen discussing her idea of the Arctic paradox. In a future episode of the podcast, we'll hear the other half of the interview in which Annika discusses the ability of the Arctic to remain a region of peace and stability, at least so far, within an increasingly fraught geopolitical environment. And stay tuned to Polar Geopolitics for a series of new episodes that are already in the pipeline, including interviews with John Holdren, Michael Byers, Joel Clement, and others that I spoke with at the 2018 Arctic Circle Assembly in Iceland. If you like what you've been hearing so far, please consider subscribing to this podcast, which is now available on a number of platforms, including Google Play, Stitcher, and Acast, as well as iTunes and Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at PolarGeopol, and visit our website, PolarGeopolitics.com. Voiceover by Keith Foster, music by Mark Vandenbosch, and logo design by Daniel Brockman. This is Eric Pagley in Stockholm. Thanks for listening to the Polar Geopolitics Podcast.